0: I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. For hundreds of years, the church has kept a calendar, telling and retelling the same story year in and year out. As we enter Holy Week, how can this ancient and often familiar story counter and contradict the many stories we're being told every day about what it means to be alive? For the last uh, 1,500 years or so, the church has kept a calendar. The idea was simple. The Bible, if you didn't know, is a story, and we, human beings, live by stories. And we're suckers, human beings, that is. It's true. If you don't believe me, then consider, if you will, the documentary film. Not a specific documentary film, just the concept of the documentary film. See, I used to have to work... Um, making these things when I was employed by a megachurch network. They would send me, a younger, more idealistic Josh Porter, to make little mini documentary films about church events and community groups, and the higher-ups would come to me and they'd say, Josh, we need you to go make a little movie about this particular community group. They host Neighborhood Farmer's Market out in Beaverton, and they use that market as a venue to share the gospel, go film it, and bring the story back or some such thing. So off I would go. I'd show up, and I would float around shooting B-roll and people shaking hands and smiling and exchanging produce, and then I'd interview some people. I'd set up a mic and a chair, and I would light it just right and ask them questions and get the best pool quotes and stories, and then it was back to the office to edit the footage, color correction, and tidy up the audio and add music and keyframe animation for the church logo, and ta-da, the video would be ready for the Sunday. And then they'd play these videos at church, and everyone would be inspired. Wow, they'd say, what a great idea. What a beautiful thing these people are doing. Why? Because the video said so. The video showed it. And it wasn't staged, nor were the interviews scripted or dishonest. It was an actual, authentic portrait of a real thing. Well, part of a real thing. It was a portrait. It was one angle because the documentary didn't intend to showcase all the great highs and lows of life together in community. We didn't have enough time or space, and that wasn't the point. It couldn't possibly do it. It was five minutes long for Pete's sake. And No no follow-up video was made later on when the leader of that community faced an existential crisis because his wife left him and tore their family apart. For most of the people who saw that video, the only story they remembered about that guy or that community, if they didn't know him personally, was that sunny, happy farmer's market, his wife there embracing him and their children, because we trusted the documentary. This is why, to date, I have never heard a single person come away from a big-budget documentary streaming on Netflix or HBO Max, at least a documentary consistent with pervading cultural currents and then say, hmm, that was thought-provoking and well-made, and it may or may not be all true or half true or something in between because all documentaries angle a bias. That's the point of a documentary. No, instead we say, I'm convinced. The killer did it. Or the innocent man was framed, or the celebrity was secretly a monster all along. We pare it back, whatever it was that the documentary told us. Maybe it was right, maybe it wasn't, but man, that was one convincing story. We're suckers for a story. Which is a problem given that we are being inundated with stories every single day. Stories about what's best and how life can be good or bad or how to be happy or what's keeping us sad. The right and wrong sides of history, politics, hashtags, television, TikTok. And we buy them without realizing a transaction has taken place because we are wired for stories. But the war of stories is nothing new. It's been going on for thousands of years, which is one reason that the early disciples of Jesus created ways for the church to immerse itself in the story of God again and again and again every calendar year over and against all other stories. The church has kept a calendar. It begins with Advent. Um, which is something that our church has observed for a few years now. And then comes something called Epiphany, then Lent, which is happening now, which goes into Easter, and then Pentecost, so that every single year, a given church knows that it is joining in with other brothers and sisters across many different denominations and traditions as we retell and relearn and re-experience the story of Jesus every single year. But over the years, for a number of different reasons, the church calendar, also called the liturgical year, kind of fell out of favor with American evangelicals. And they came to regard it as like a strange artifact of Roman Catholics, despite the fact that the liturgical year has always been observed across a wide variety of Protestant tradition. It's a truly weird phenomenon because Pretty much every tradition and denomination kept Easter and Christmas, which are dates on the liturgical calendar. Couldn't bear to part with those. And then they even welcomed the secularization of both things, the Christmas trees and the Easter eggs and all that kind of stuff. But then they freak out about terms like Lent or Epiphany because they sound too Catholic, whatever. The point is that we... As Van City Church, value the practices of the early church and have been finding a way into the church calendar slowly as a church for a little while now, learning as we go one piece at a time. And today is the first day of something called Holy Week. Today is Palm Sunday. So tonight, I want to invite us as a church into the experience of Holy Week. Beginning with Palm Sunday, I'm going to give you a brief tour of the Scriptures, stories, meditations to which disciples of Jesus all over the world will draw their attention in the days to come as we prepare our hearts and our minds and our lives for the most significant celebration for disciples of Jesus, which is next Sunday. So heads up, it's going to feel like a lot of information, but my hope is to give us a good starting point for reading and meditating for the days ahead. Are you guys up for it? You feeling okay? Great, thank you. A few of you are. The rest of you, buckle up, I guess. It begins with Palm Sunday, which is Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. When Jesus... Sends for a donkey, the story Levi just read. And if you notice, as he read that story, there's this line when Jesus sends his friends to get the donkey. He tells them, and I quote, If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them. The word Lord emphasizes Jesus' kingship. Some, some scholars argue that it emphasizes his deity. But the Lord also needs something, which emphasizes Jesus' humanity. And the thing that he needs is a donkey. <laughs> which emphasizes his gentleness. This is a master stroke of literary sophistication on Matthew's part. But why the whole thing with the donkey at all? See, the Jewish imagination was informed by the Hebrew Scriptures and the promises of their prophets. They believed that one day the Messiah, the anointed King, would come down the Mount of Olives and into Jerusalem to rescue His people once and for all. Here's a great quote on this text from Martin Luther. He wrote, "'Jesus is presented here as sheer grace, humility, and goodness, and whoever believes that of Him is blessed.'" Look at him. He rides no stallion, which is a war animal, and he comes not with fearful pomp and power, but sits on a donkey, which is no war animal, but which is ready for burdens of work that will help human beings. He does not come to terrify people, to drive or oppress them, but to help them, to carry their burdens and take them on himself. Scholars note that Jesus' decision to enter into Jerusalem on a donkey is a deliberate gesture of nonviolence. See, here's a little bit of history for you. In uh, 332 BC, Alexander the Great entered Jerusalem on a magnificent war horse. But Jesus, the Messiah, whom everyone believed would take up the sword against Rome, enters Jerusalem instead on a donkey. Theologian Stanley Hauerwa says this of the passage, "...victors in battle do not ride into their capital cities riding on donkeys, but rather they ride on fearsome horses. But this king does not and will not triumph through force of arms." When there are no trumpets or heralds or chariots, nothing to separate Jesus from the people. Which is why one scholar I read this week noted that he comes on a quiet donkey that the poorest of his subjects may not be discouraged in their access to him. As usual, God's favor is with the poor and the oppressed. Again, Howard Wallace writes this, Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem is an unmistakable political act. He has come to be acknowledged as king. He is the son of David, the one long expected to free Jerusalem from foreign domination. Yet, this king triumphs not through violent revolt, but by being for Israel the one able to show it that its worship of God is its freedom. This is a really bold gesture, and the people respond. If you have your Bible still open, look again at Matthew 21 at verse 8. The story goes, a very large crowd sped, spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from trees, spread them on the ground. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna, the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. So this is actually a really beautiful scene. The people traveling with Jesus, they dignify this humble, poor peasant rabbi riding on a donkey. They shout, Hosanna, which means literally, save, please. They shout, praise the king, and they lay down their cloaks so this donkey can walk over them. Then look at verse 10. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? That word stirred can be translated uh, Jerusalem quaked. It's actually the same Greek word that gives us our English word seismic. Jesus' entry into the city was huge. And I love the answer to that question, who is this? In verse 11, the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So Jesus has to be identified with such specificity. One, because uh, Jesus or Yeshua was a common Jewish name. It still is in Greek. It's Joshua. How about that? But also because Nazareth was so obscure, it had to be geographically linked to a place people actually recognized. Nazareth in Galilee. Not just the merciful Lord, but the humble peasant king. And then the story shifts, which will take us to Holy Monday, beginning tomorrow morning. Jesus cleanses the temple. Look at Matthew 21, verse 12. Jesus entered the temple courts. Remember... This entire scene is unfolding during the time that Passover is being observed in Jerusalem. So all Jewish men were expected to visit the temple during this time. So the city would have been insane with crowds and activity. And the area of the temple that Jesus entered is actually called the courtyard, which made up like an extensive open area surrounding the building. Most people were allowed there. So it became a kind of neutral meeting place for visitors and locals and pilgrims in need of an animal to sacrifice they could trade money in and buy doves, or they could trade their currency to get local currency, so they could buy a dove to perform animal sacrifices. So in steps Jesus into all this crowded, crazy hustle and bustle, money being exchanged, and then read the rest of verse 12. And Jesus drove out all who were buying and selling there. The language here is strong, with drove out being the same word used elsewhere in Matthew's gospel to describe exercising a demon. Jesus is apparently appalled, furious even, with the temple establishment being run with the lifeless efficiency of a supermarket. But notice, Jesus doesn't just drive out the cashiers. He drives out the people buying from them, implicating them as equally guilty But Jesus isn't done. Keep reading. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. See, again, it was customary in the temple to offer resources for exchanging pagan currency for temple coins that could be used within the temple and to conveniently sell doves for sacrifice. It's kind of like when you go to an arcade, you got to switch over your quarters for the little gold coins. But it seems as if Jesus believes both practices, the exchanging currency and the buying and selling... Are corrupt. They are abuses of a holy place. But the authoritative king is still the gentle and nonviolent Lord. Frederick Dale Bruner, in his commentary on Matthew, writes this He touches no one's person, he hits no enemy. He does not go inside the temple's innermost precinct where sacrifices were offered. All this takes place in the court of the Gentiles where worship ought to go on, but where there is apparently too much business for worship to be focused or undisturbed. But Jesus does touch property. (laughs) Property is put below personal values in the ethical calculus of Jesus. Though it is not correct to say that Jesus destroys property here, he does thoroughly rearrange the furniture. (laughs) No, Jesus does not contradict his own teaching in forbidding violence, but he does get very angry, and he makes an intense, deliberate, premeditated display of that frustration. He's not out of control. This is calculated and exacting, which means that sometimes love is gentle and quiet, and sometimes love flips over tables. Jesus is not The gentle, merciful Lord and the humble King only, He is also the mighty prophet and the true King of Israel. In modern vernacular, the word prophecy has become almost entirely, and we would argue mistakenly, a synonym for predicting the future. And even when we know that that's not what the Bible means by the word prophecy, it can be tricky to kind of keep that word in its ancient context. So, one of the primary functions of the prophetic tradition of Israel was to confront evil, and injustice, to call out political corruption and religi- religious corruption. Israel's prophets called out sin. They spoke for God by reminding his people of the truth, which included the promise of hope in the future and the condemnation of sin in the present. So Jesus, as a prophet, stands in that tradition, one of Israel's great and mighty prophets. And look, He's going to have words with them too. Verse 13, It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer. You are making it a den of robbers. Predictably, Jesus stands up against corruption and injustice with what else? The Bible. He quotes scripture at these people, which I love. To the ever popular complaint, we like Jesus, but not the Bible. One can only reply, how? The two are inseparable. In the mind of Jesus, one confronts evil and injustice and even the devil himself with the authority of the Scriptures. Now, most of you who grew up in the whole church world are likely familiar with the metaphorical armor of God that is listed out in Ephesians 6. Among those items listed, the only offensive weapon is the Scriptures, This is why we steep ourselves in the story of God year in and year out. And if Jesus doesn't seem antiquated or old-fashioned enough, notice the high value he sets on the temple, a place of worship. He calls it God's house. He calls it a place. Of prayer See, my generation has responded to kind of the sanctimonious religious over-emphasizing of buildings by de-emphasizing buildings and places into nothing at all. They don't matter. They're not important. Go if you want to, but you don't have to. But in Jesus' mind, places, buildings and rooms and structures intended for worship are imbued with a kind of spiritual significance because of what happens there. And Jesus doesn't just scold and flip tables. He gets to work rectifying the situation in an incredible way. Look at verse 14. The blind and lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. It's hilarious. Jesus actually drives the people with the money and status out of the temple, and then he ushers in the poor and the diseased and the outcast. Jesus is tapping into a multitude of prophetic Hebrew scriptures to say, this is it. The day has come. Not just in the secret corners of the empire. No more discretion whatsoever. No secrets. It's time for everyone to know the Messiah is here. And this is the act that will get him arrested and killed. Killed. God's presence has returned to the temple in Jerusalem at last. Man, Jesus emphasizing the authority of the scriptures and the sacredness of buildings and places. Now, that is an offensive message for those on the sociopolitical left. And my God, Jesus driving those with money and comfort and status out of God's sacred space so that he can make room for the poor and the oppressed and those put out by society. Now, that is an offensive message for those on the sociopolitical right. Right. And the story goes on, taking us to Holy Tuesday, where we remember the strange story of Jesus cursing the fig tree. Matthew chapter 21, verse 18. Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree withered. This is a really, really strange story. Jesus reverse ETs a tree, you know? And the story is bizarre for a few reasons. The first being that this is the only punitive miracle recorded in any of the Gospels. It's a punishment, not a healing. And it seems particularly harsh because it wasn't fig season. Jesus lived there. He knew this. His disciples knew this. So it seems really strange punishing a plant for fruit that you know it won't have, but there's actually a profound dimension of Jesus' personality on display in this strange scene. Remember, Jesus is an artist. He loves symbolism. And Jesus, the artist, loves dark, strange, aesthetic metaphor. Jesus is a Jewish rabbi who has grown up steeped, again, in the Hebrew scriptures, in the story of God. Jeremiah 8, in the prophetic tradition of Israel, for example, was something that Jesus knew well where he would have read again and again, and I quote, There will be no figs on the tree, and their leaves will wither. And there are other passages like it. Hosea, when I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. When I saw your ancestors, it was like seeing the early fruit on the fig tree. And then in Micah 7, what misery is mine? I am like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There is no cluster of grapes to eat, none of the early figs that I crave. The faithful have been swept from the land, not one upright person remains. So the fruit of the fig tree has been a symbol of Israel's faithfulness running throughout the Hebrew scriptures. And God, the artist, loves symbolism. In the Old Testament, God commands symbolic performance art and symbolic interior design for the tabernacle and the temple where His presence would dwell. When God appears to Israel throughout the Scriptures, He does so, does so using all kinds of symbolic imagery of chariots and animals and storm formations. And the symbolism of God isn't always pretty or palatable. Israel's history is marked by stoic, somber, symbolic practices like animal sacrifices or ritual cleansing with blood, the burning of entrails, and Jesus will go on to command the symbolic practice of communion, which we take so much we often forget. It's this practice where ordinary bread and wine symbolize flesh and blood of Jesus that we take into our bodies as we remember his violent execution. Now, remember, in the story that preceded this one, Jesus enters Jerusalem in grand fashion. He announces himself as Messiah and King. But when he enters the temple, he's frustrated. He declares it corrupt, flips over the tables. The scholars argue that the cursing of the fig tree is a symbolic, punitive gesture, almost like performance art, performed before the disciples to demonstrate Jesus' frustration with the fruitlessness of Israel. So Jesus approaches this fruitless plant that was already fruitless when he got there, and he pronounces judgment on it for being fruitless. This, we think, is meant to demonstrate both the powerful authority of Jesus and the seriousness of judgment. And then things get worse, bringing us to Holy Wednesday when Judas betrays Jesus. So if you're still in the gospel, turn over to Matthew 26, where we will find the tragic figure Judas Iscariot and look down at verse 14. Then one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. So the story is going from triumph. Jesus enters the city to confrontation. He curses and judges, and now it descends into the depths of betrayal and tragedy. And Matthew includes the tragedy of Judas as a companion piece to the tragedy of Peter. Now, if you know the story, Peter also betrays Jesus by denying him several times under oath, calling down curses on himself to embellish his denouncing of the man with whom he just promised he was willing to die. Peter fails, and he is seized with pain and remorse. But Peter's story does not conclude tragically, whereas Judas' story is miserably bleak. And the difference between the two is what the Scriptures intend to teach readers of the story then and now. Peter will eventually willfully face Jesus again. He brings himself, ashamed and fallen, back to Jesus in repentance— Judas, on the other hand, is remorseful. He confesses. He repays the blood money that he received to betray Jesus. But there's no mention of Judas coming before God in repentance. He doesn't go looking for Jesus. Maybe he felt as if he couldn't bear it. We don't know. And the second significant departure from Peter's story is the way one bout of remorse brings repentance. And the other bout of remorse brings despair. N.T. Wright said of this dichotomy, "'Remorse and repentance both begin with looking at something you've done and realizing it was wrong. But the first goes down the hill of anger, recrimination, self-hatred, and ultimately self-destruction the way that leads to death. The second goes down the route Peter took of tears, shame, and a way back to life.'" Now, all of us know firsthand what it means to fail our Master and Lord. And this is why the celebration of Easter next Sunday is so heartrendingly beautiful for those of us who follow Jesus. And this is why we tell these stories of failure again and again and again. Because when Jesus knew that Peter would deny him, when he knew already that Judas would betray him, when he knew that all of the 12 would abandon him entirely, with the heavy burden of all this knowledge in his heart and on his mind, Jesus knelt and washed his disciples' feet, which is what we remember on something called Maundy Thursday. Now, Maundy is from the Latin word mandatum, where we get the English word for command or mandate. It's a reference to Jesus' command to the disciples' Love one another as I have loved you. So keep your finger here in Matthew and turn to the right in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John chapter 13. And let's read beginning with the first verse. The story goes, It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Knowing his beloved in full, the awful scope of their willingness to deny and abandon him, Jesus got on his hands and knees to serve them even so. And he wasn't done. This Friday, we will remember the cross. Now, before we're done, flip back over to Matthew one more time, Matthew chapter 27, and let's read Matthew 27 beginning with verse 27. This is the passion story of Jesus of Nazareth. The governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered a whole company of soldiers around him. Now, in context, a whole company of soldiers refers to a battalion. That's up to 600 Roman soldiers, So Matthew is creating this absurd visual dichotomy between the overpowering military might of Rome and the apparent weakness and singularity of this one poor peasant rabbi Jesus. Then look down at verse 28. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, the scarlet tunic was a standard soldier garb. This is a bit of brilliant literary artistry on Matthew's part. The soldiers intend to mock this pathetic, hilariously overpowered, would-be Messiah by draping him, ironically, in a military cape. But in doing so, they figuratively coronate him as the true Messiah, who is in this horrific scene in the process of achieving his true messianic glory. They are mocking Jesus because the Jewish Messiah was presumed to be this great soldier who would violently overthrow the entire empire. And here is this pitiful, would-be warrior won against a battalion, and he refuses to fight back. And their mockery ironically recognizes Jesus as warrior in his nonviolent warfare against evil. Jesus is the great warrior, just not the kind anyone was expecting. And sadly, some things never change. But this, this suffering and impending death is how the true Messiah actually accomplishes victory, not by taking life, but by laying it down. When the mockery continues, verse 29, they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail the king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him. They took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. And after they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him and they led him away to crucify him. So Jesus receives injustice and abuse from the Jewish religious establishment in his arrest. He was abandoned and denied by his disciples. And now he's being abused and denied by Roman political power and by the ordinary Gentiles. Anyone and everyone. In his commentary on the passage, scholar Frederick Dale Bruner writes, It was not just high Roman power that was guilty in Jesus' passion. Ordinary Romans hurt Jesus as well. This was the one chance in the gospel for ordinary Gentiles to come through, but they too fail in a crunch. The masses, the common people, are no less sinners than the elites and the bourgeois. All have sinned, total undependability. Verse 32. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. So Jesus at this point in the story, is in such a physical state of agony and exhaustion that he becomes incapable of carrying his cross to the degree that his cruel Roman executionary, executioners, they don't even bother enforcing the issue. They can see it has become a physical impossibility. So his physical state must have been really, really bad. And notice, none of Jesus' apprentices are present to volunteer for the task. They can't ask one of Jesus' friends to carry the cross because they are not there to ease their master's suffering, even a little bit. He had been entirely abandoned. And then verse 33, they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And there they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it So uh, this wine concoction we think was likely some small concession for suffering criminals, even in the barbarism of this procedure. Crucifixion was designed to take a very long time. The victim would be suspended by rope or by nails through the hands and feet, and they would typically asphyxiate slowly over the course of several agonizing days. Unable to lift themselves enough to draw breath, the victim would succumb to the comprehensive trauma by suffocating, shock, heart attack, thirst, sepsis, or all of these things working together slowly. Contrary to most artistic depictions, victims of crucifixion were stripped naked to further their humiliation. This was a visual display of their powerlessness against Roman might. Physical and mental, psychological torture One first century philosopher called Seneca the Younger wrote that victims of crucifixion typically suffered a sharpened stick forced upward through the groin, which created this maddening struggle to hold oneself up against the exhaustion that inevitably lowered the victim back down on the spike. Another ancient Roman writer described crucifixion this way, crucifixion is a most cruel and disgusting punishment. The very mention of the cross should be far removed not only from a Roman citizen's body, but from his mind, his eyes, his ears. It is a crime to bind a Roman citizen. To scourge him is a wickedness. To put him to death is almost parricide. What shall I say of crucifying him? So guilty an action cannot by any possibility be adequate, adequately expressed by any name bad enough for it. In fact, The root word of our English word excruciating is literally out of crucifying. This particular method of execution was designed not only to dispose of troublemakers, you could do that anyway, but to inflict maximum physical, emotional, psychological suffering and to do so in the public square so that any and all observers would be stricken with horror and fear, thus dissuading would-be criminals and quell would-be rebellions against the Roman Empire. The idea is you're walking into the city and you see this happening and you would say to yourself, this is what happens when you mess with Rome, forget it. Now, the wine-gall mixture mentioned back in the story we just read was like a tiny, inadequate gesture of quasi-mercy in the midst of this unimaginable cruelty. The victim usually had a a very long few days ahead of them, and the wine-gall mixture could act as like a mild anesthetic. But Jesus would not drink it. Matthew doesn't say why. It could have been that Jesus is unwilling to compromise his sobriety, in so crucial a moment. He wants to experience it fully. It could be that Jesus decided to imbibe the complete suffering of the task before him in such uncompromising glory that he refuses even the smallest relief. And then we read in verse 35, When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots and sitting down. They kept watch over him there. Now that uh, verse, they kept watch over him there, kind of glides right by if you're reading the story, but it's particularly tragic because those guards are assigned to keep watch lest any of Jesus' followers come to rescue him. They did not know no one was coming to help Jesus, not even his closest friends. Then in verse 37 we read, above his head they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Again, the effort to mock Jesus becomes this beautiful irony in its accidental truth. Matthew is creating this incredible literary meta-masterpiece in which the tragedy of Jesus' execution is contrasted in real time by the glory of his victory. The reader is meant to be torn between these two overlapping realities. The horror and shame of Jesus' abandoned, ridiculed, tortured, dying in agony, and the simultaneous, concurrent, awe-inspiring majesty of centuries of God's prophetic promises from Genesis to Malachi come to fruition in the most beautifully unexpected way possible. And Matthew is doing this by weaving in language from the Psalms and from the prophet Isaiah throughout the Hebrew Scriptures to demonstrate this is it. This is the serpent-crushing son of Eve from Genesis, the rescuing king of the Old Testament, the promised one, the suffering servant of Isaiah. Now, some of the allusions that Matthew makes are obvious. Others are demonstrated with incredible literary flourish in one subtle verse. Let me show you just one of them. This is one of my favorite things about this entire gospel. Look down at verse 38. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Now, before this story, back in chapter 20, Jesus said something strange and cryptic, almost in passing. You might have forgotten it if you were reading straight through. In the story, we read, "'The mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons,' two of Jesus' disciples, "'and kneeling down, asked a favor of Jesus. "'What is it you want?' Jesus asked. "'She said, "'Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right "'and the other at your left in your kingdom.'" You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink my cup. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared already by my Father. This moment of agony, this scene of suffering, has become the enthronement of Jesus the King. His crown is made of thorns. The praise due him is mockery. The recognition of his kingship is ironic. And the holy honor of being seated at his right and his left as he is enthroned in his kingdom has been given by the Father to criminals deemed worthy of death. The mother of Zebedee's sons assumed that Jesus would enter his kingdom and the anticipated glory as Israel's king, like everyone thought. But to share in Jesus' glory was not to stand beside him in military revolution, but to share in his suffering. And the coronation continues, verse 39, those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads, saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, something Jesus said earlier, save yourself Come down from the cross if you're the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if God wants him. For Jesus said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. This is a reference to an Old Testament promise. In that day, declares the sovereign Yahweh, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious festivals into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like mourning for an only sun at the end of it like a bitter day. The darkness represents God's anger and grief. And it marks what scriptures call the day of the Lord. Matthew describes this moment with huge, sweeping, grandiose language to communicate to the reader then and now the gravity of this thing that's happening. He could be using apocalyptic Hebrew imagery to communicate the idea of darkness uh, of the moment with symbolism, or it could have been an actual, strange, literal darkness that fell over Palestine. Either way, the point is, this is it. Then verse 46, about three in the afternoon. Now, that's not just an arbitrary detail. This is specific. Remember, this scene is unfolding concurrently with the Passover festival in Jerusalem. At three o'clock... That would be the time when the daily lamb was brought into the temple to be sacrificed. Matthew, again, weaving this incredible literary tapestry of Old Testament imagery and symbols to proclaim that what John the Baptist said of Jesus is true. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 46 goes on, Jesus cried out in a loud voice. And then he says in Aramaic, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is actually quoting the first line of Psalm 22, 22. And Matthew, for the first and last time in this biography of Jesus, documents the quotation not in Greek, but in Aramaic. He's drawing unique attention to the sacredness of this moment and this statement to the degree that it's almost like he just has to present the words exactly as Jesus said them. To take on the true horror of evil, injustice, and hell. Jesus must see it through to the harrowing pit of despair. And now his suffering is complete. If Jesus had felt enveloped in the loving comfort of God while on the cross, if he had been zen, at peace, then this pivotal moment of confronting the darkness of evil and death would have been at least partially anesthetized. But Jesus is facing the true horror of physical, emotional, and spiritual dereliction. This horror is so profound that many have rushed to excuse it away. And we say things like, well, surely Jesus didn't mean to say that he felt abandoned by God. He's Jesus for Pete's sake. To this, Bruner writes, why can't we allow Jesus to say abandoned when he feels, thinks, sees, and believes himself abandoned? Jesus' loneliness is now complete. This is the deepest darkness of all. When God's presence goes, the lights go out. Jesus is not only surrounded by outward darkness, he does not inwardly feel God's presence at all. He dies before he dies. This is Jesus' descent into hell. Jesus goes all the way into agony and abandonment with the weight of all sin and suffering and evil, bearing down on his soul, abandoned by God, and he dies. And maybe, his friends thought, the story was over, and they waited, but Jesus' work was not done. On Holy Saturday, we remember the harrowing of hell, the coolest title for any of the days in Holy Week. In that awful day, that awful time of waiting, Jesus confronted the full horror of death, what the scriptures call Sheol, the grave, the realm of the dead. Easter is not the celebration of someone who is temporarily lifeless and then gets resuscitated. When we leave Jesus on Good Friday, as he is laid in the tomb, he is dead. And then we wait for Sunday. This is a story. For disciples of Jesus, it is the most important story. It began in Genesis, and it concludes on a coming day with the renewal of all things. And we know all of this because of the story that we tell and we retell, specifically in the days to come. So my invitation to each of you, I know that was a lot of information. I want to leave you with this. My invitation to each of you this evening is to ask God's Spirit to prepare your heart to receive this story again and anew, and to ask God's Spirit what He wants to show you in the days to come. Where is He leading? What is He asking? Our friends at Bridgetown Church have prepared this wonderful Holy Week devotional. You're all invited to use it. It's up now at vancity.church slash holyweek. If you're in the Vancity community, your leader has one they can send to you as well. For many of us, I know this is a deeply familiar story, and yet it continues to teach, to convict, to astound, and to encourage those who follow Jesus as we tell and retell it again and again and again. I thought this week about something that happened uh, recently. Uh, it was a couple of years ago, but you know, these last few years, who knows? They blend together. I invited a couple of friends of mine to my house to watch one of my all-time favorite films, uh, Jim Henson's The Dark Crystal. And I remember. They had never seen it. We watched it together. When it was over, my friend Whitney and Josiah asked me, how many times have you seen that? And I told them, I've seen it many, many times. And then Whitney asked me, do you still notice something new when you watch it now after decades and dozens of viewings? And the truth was that I did. I had noticed something new just moments prior watching it that night because good art is like that. And God's Spirit... The artist can uncover new depths of soul intersection with every new reading of the text, every retelling of the story, but we can miss it. And I don't have my typical immediate call to action at the end of this teaching. This is just an opportunity in the days ahead. Holy Week is not the only opportunity you'll have this year to contemplate these stories or for God's Spirit to speak to you through them. But there's something about the sacredness of these meditations, extending out into centuries of church history, something about knowing that as you read and contemplate in the days ahead, your brothers and sisters around the world, so many of them will be reading the same stories and contemplating the same things. It compels us up from the shallow individualism of our anemic, individualist social media spiritualities and into the rich Complicated family of conviction and solidarity. We are not our own. We belong to the Father, to one another. And we know this because of the stories we tell. And we know this when we tell them. This story is our story. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church.